Are you a business owner looking to grow and scale your company? Do you want to prepare your company to successfully take on investment? Start by taking the Become Investable Digital Scorecard Assessment. In less than six minutes, you will have information identifying weaknesses in your business model and receive advice on how to address them. Developed using the signature BI methodology, the scorecard assesses your business based on six key investability metrics and provides a comprehensive report to show you how to build a more investable business. Go to becomeinvestable.com scorecard today to start your journey to investability. Caribbean to the world. This show is for those of you seeking to grow and scale your business to compete on a global stage. Podcast World, I am your host, Kevin Valley, and this is Caribbean Power Lunch. I'm happy to come and talk about platinum selling, Grammy Award winning, musical legend, recipient of the Jamaican Order of Merit, Mr. Peter Tosh through the lens of his daughter, who has not only accepted the charge, but who's volunteered to take the responsibility of managing and being responsible for his legacy. Ms. Niambi Makitosh. Niambi, how are you doing? I am well. Thank you so much for having me. Yes, and thank you for being here. Now, Niambi, I mean, I noticed that you've done quite a bit of these podcasts as of later. I have. Um, I try to stay busy. You know, our, my mission is always to make sure that I spread the word. You know, that, that's pretty much um, what I'm expected to do. So <laughs> <laughs> what I'm expected what to I'm do. tasked to do, you what know, and so it's, it's what I'm also passionate about. So I was telling you, in this particular episode, I want to kind of stray away from the typical format that I've heard from your from the interviews before, where you know people kind of ask you, okay, so tell us about it, what your dad did, tell us about the foundation, whatever it is. And I want to actually look at it through your lens. So for me, right? So my my dad was also a public figure. He was a he was a, a senior politician here in here in Trinidad and Tobago, right? Um, he passed away in 2011 when i was around 24 so i mean if you do the quick math you maybe you could decide how old i I understand your dad he would have passed in 1987 when you were around five years old so i mean you would have been a child at the time right so how does that mean for you growing up you know learning about the legend of a man that your father was you know trying to really you know um, grapple hold of it and yeah just mean yeah, how did that impact your childhood? You know, as a as a child, um, you kind of get used to just the the presence not being there. You know, I think you know when you lose a father at an older age, it's it's very very different, and so um, I think it's a it's a lot more fresh um, as far as wounds go. So for me, um, I think that it, the, the the understanding of like who my father was and the the deficit that existed in my life didn't come until I was older um, because I didn't re- I don't really have any memories of him and so um, I just knew grow I was growing up with my mom and that was yeah. the the normal for for us and you know what we listened to was music and I I can't say that my mom you know sat us down often and was just like your father this and I don't think a lot of parents don't often do that it's just that you know they go to work they taking care of you they're making sure you're you're fed and in school and so um it wasn't until I got a lot older uh when I started to think a little bit deeper about really who my father was and and what he stood for right yeah because I mean I, I mean I understand you would have gone on to do a bachelor's in engineering and stuff, right? And so, I mean, I guess I'm trying to map out so how did that pivot happen to to get to you? You know, just essentially dedicating your your career, your mm-hmm. well, at least your your career, your working your working years, to managing his estate and and you know managing the legacy, right? So you would have done your bachelor's in engineering, and then I I could kind of see the pivot when you would have went on to do a master's in education. Some some years after that, so can let's let's kind of talk us through that mm-hmm. that switch that period. 
Well, I think the the backdrop is, um, you know, born in Jamaica to a, a mother who's from Boston. And so we lived in Boston for a few years before um, we moved back to Boston, where a lot of um, my maternal side of the family lives. And so I grew up very much Boston. And it was, um, you know, what I grew up, we called it the hood. So it was, <laughs> you know, there was gun violence, there was, um, um gangs and but I never felt um unsafe because I never I was never a target you know I wasn't involved in any gangs I wasn't involved um I wasn't a troublemaker and so uh, my mother made a point to make sure that my home was safe and so and peaceful and um so we were able to focus on our education and so I, I I've always liked to to do things with my hand I'd be opening VCRs and trying to fix things and that is what I thought engineering was without any models in my life right. of what engineering is when in fact it's really just a technician uh so I decided to go into engineering um and then you know I think it was only a year in in my bachelor's degree, I was like, I don't think I want to do this. It was um, probably 95% white men, uh, white, you know, boys at the time. And um, I probably was the only black girl in uh, all of my classes and sometimes the only black person. And, but I didn't want to, you know, be broke. So I was like, I'm going to finish this and just keep going. Cause I didn't really know what else I would do at that point. And so I graduated from Wentworth Institute of Technology in, in Boston, and then uh, ended up getting a, a, a job right out of college. Um, and there I worked with, you know, predominantly older white men. And so I was 21 and everybody else was like 50 plus. Um, and so, and so it was just very, very different for me. And, um, but throughout all this time, I've always loved children. Um, I've always been around children, little cousins and babysitting and just uh, hanging around with family and stuff like that. Having children, you know, come by and stay at the house, having toys at the house for, for kids that I don't have, you know. <laughs> um, yeah. So I've always felt this calling to kind of redirect and go into education and um uh, after three years of engineering, I decided to kind of make the move. I wasn't really a fan of school. And so I never really liked school. So I found a um, accelerated. I like to learn, which is different, but I don't like <laughs> the yes, tradition. Yeah. I don't like the traditional education system that we have. And so uh, I found an accelerated master's program and was able to um you know, go to school for education. And it literally threw you in the classroom as an educator. And you really learned with a mentor um, how to be a, a, an excellent teacher. And that is where I made the pivot. Okay. Almost a year after you finished your master's, you, you stepped up the youngest of, out of your 10 siblings to take over your dad's estate. I mean, what was that like? How, was, how did that end up being a unanimous decision? So for many years, it was the estate was run by a, a public administrator. Um, mm -hmm. I remember being 18 and uh, having our first like family meeting about the estate. Uh, but the conversation was never about the family taking it over. It was just like, here's our, here's kind of, you guys are all heirs to this estate. And it was led by a, um, you know, public administrator and a lawyer that kind of assisted us with certain things. And so we just thought that was the norm. And so for, you know, 10, 12 years or so, um, we kind of just kept things as status quo. Um, and then a lawyer who happened to be a friend of my mom's started to inquire. My mom always, she's my biggest fan. So she's always just like, well, you know, my daughter, <laughs> you know, she's, she's the daughter of Peter Tosh. My children are the children of Peter Tosh. And so she's like, you never know, you got a network. And so she's just always um, sharing. She's humble at times, but once you open that door, you know, it's floodgates. And so um, she shared with the lawyer, he happened to be a super, super Peter Tosh fan and just, um, and wanted to kind of know more about just the legacy and how things were set up. And, and then he kind of questioned like, why is, you know, this estate 
you know, so many years after he's deceased, still run by a public administrator, it should be run by the family. And it wasn't until I had that bit of knowledge that I was like, oh, okay, I didn't know that. You know, none of the family really thought of it. It was never, ever discussed. We would have meetings from time to time, distributions from time to time, but that was the extent of it. And so um, once we we started to discuss it as a family, um, you know, I had, you know, two older brothers that are extremely intelligent. And I think that with some intelligence for, for, for men comes some stubbornness. <laughs> um, yes. And so um, I think that for them, it was a lot of back and forth with maybe it should be, you know, one brother over the other and um, a lot of debate about that. And, and um, you know, at that point, I just said, hey, what about me? You know, I, I, I see that there was a need. I had already graduated from, um, you know, from college and, and figured, you know, I know that if I'm going to do this, I'm, I know I'm going to do it with integrity. So I, I, and I know that my family has always known that about me. And um, I think it was just, you know, a simple decision, especially having kind of the most education out of, out of the family. Yeah. Yeah. And many things, right. Uh, also, as like the management of estates of, such an acclaimed artist. I mean, it's that's big business, right? So, I me mean, just earlier this year. So, I'm also, I mean, career-wise, I'm a I'm a business valuator, right? I, I value companies for who are looking to raise capital or or sell their business. I've I've discovered that Princess Estate was actually valued at 156.4 million US dollars just earlier this year. Oh wow! Right? Yeah. Yeah, so I mean, who knows what's um mm-hmm. what the Peter Torch estate is worth, right? Managing the, the business of your father's estate, a, a very I mean, a thriving estate. How did you adjust to that, right? You know, so you have your background in engineering, switch it to background as an educator, but now you have to put on your business management hat. You know, at a fairly at a fairly young age. So how was that going in for you? I mean, I can tell that you're you're a bold, a fearless person, but how how was that how was that adjustment for you? It was learning through the school of hard knocks. Um, it was a lot of mistakes. It was a lot of um, learning. And you, you that's the only way, you know, I, I tell people that all the time. And I made a point to, to let my family know as we, we went through it, um, particularly on the other side, I was like, there's only one way to learn this stuff. There's no book, there's no handbook, there's no, there's no other, you know, there's very few examples of, of people that are doing it that we can kind of turn to. Um, there's only one Peter Tosh, you know, <laughs> and so it, um, we started off kind of looking back because just like every other musician, particularly a black musician, there's, there's always been places and times, um, throughout their career when they've been taken advantage of. And, um, so we spent a lot of time and money looking back to try to dig up, um, you know, and, and, and fix the mistakes of the past in the sense of like making, seeing who owes us money, like, Digging, and then you find yourself digging through files and files and files. And um, it ended up taking a lot of time. And we, after a while, um, it really wasn't until I got uh, the manager that we have now, Brian Latour, who really um, started working with us just through being passionate about just working with the family, seeing that it was, you know, me pretty much by myself at the time um, with, you know, check-ins with my brother from, from, you know, here and there, but uh, having accountants and lawyers and, and managers just all benefiting from the estate where the family wasn't the ones benefiting first. And so he, he stepped in and was just like, what the hell is going on here? (laughs) And um, that's when it was just like a, uh, a liberating kind of feeling to just fire everybody at that time and, and start and start fresh. And, um, and so you, you just continue to, to go and grow and learn. And, um, but it was definitely, I, I probably, I think Brian joined us around 2014. Um, but it was, it, I learned a lot through that time of just like, you know, figuring out things, taking the first opportunity that comes because you're like, okay, here goes, you know, movie deal. I guess we sign it, you know, 
then everyone's telling you, well, this is standard. You know, this is what you're supposed to sign this. This is this is standard deal. There's no such thing as a standard deal. You set the terms that you want. You know, those are things that you learn only through time and wisdom. But when you have the wrong people around you only serving their interests, they're just going to try to get you to sign whatever is going to benefit them. Um, and so it took some time and, and some some wisdom to kind of and some growing pains. But, um, you know, it, it we've I've learned a lot over the years and I and I don't regret any of it because that's the only way that I learn is kind of going through some things. You can talk about things till I'm blue in the face, but sometimes you just got to go through it. Yeah, I would love to see the um, Peter Tosh estate be with multi-millions probably even, you know, get that billion dollar valuation. And, you know, the, again, as a- It's coming, it's coming. All right, all right, all right. It's coming. I'll tell you as a valuator that there are two main factors that impact valuation, right? That is growth. So growth of whatever cash flows or revenues you're able to achieve Mm -hmm. and risk, anything that could cause negative growth or, or even volatility in your growth, right? Right. And it seems that based on what you just shared, that when you when you came into the into the let's say management position, that you know you had a lot of cleaning up to do, right? So you had to remove a lot of the risk, right? Poor mm-hmm. systems, poor people, um, well, wrong people, whatnot. And then you hit that inflection point where okay, fire everybody, start fresh. So what I would, I mean, what I'd love to harp on a little bit more, just for a little bit, because I think it's also valuable for anybody's listening who may be taking over um, their family's estate. I mean, the creative space, you know, the creative space is getting bigger in the Caribbean and, and beyond. Very and true. So like, how do you, how, how do you think about from a strategic standpoint? How do you think about actually, you know, growing the estate, you know, um, pursuing those deals or whatever, whatever, like, is there a strategy in place that you're willing to share publicly? Oh, definitely. Um, you know, I think, after going through kind of that first chapter and all of those people that I, that were there in the beginning, I hired them when I first started, they kind of with the, the, the lawyer that um, was a fan, we ended up hiring him. And um, then he was able to, we kind of found different people uh, management, but then it was a, a short run, maybe, you know, three, five years. Um, it was 2010 to about 20. So yeah, about uh four or five years that, you know, we ended up then firing everybody. But um, now I reflect and I'm always, you know, any deal that comes our way, we, we, I ask about the exit strategy, you know, I want to make sure that we're not locked into, um, you know, something that doesn't work out. And, you know, um, you know, I also make sure that we put in um, performance benchmarks, you know, Mm -hmm. so that if you're coming in and saying that, oh, you know, we could do all of this and we're going to make money together. And you're like, and people talk, talk, but, you know, I want to see those, that criteria in the, in the, in the contract. Um, I don't want to see anything that's, you know, all that fluff talk. That's what I learned that a lot of people, no offense, people in LA, but a lot of people in LA. (laughs) 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 It was just, um, they were just yes men, you know, that was my team. I, I, don't have any hate against it but it was something that I learned you have conversations it was like yeah 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 yeah, we got you and it's just you know and then you start you know time goes by and you're like I don't see any action like what is going on um and so definitely just making sure that every single um aspect of what happens in your initial conversation or the conversation can be put on paper and and people are held and and bound to that by a contractual agreement um and then also, um, you know, also we, we focused on, on visibility. It was 2015. I think I heard, I heard on the radio once, I think, where they were talking about Bobby Brown from New Edition. And they said every time that someone says his name or something on the radio, his like royalties spike um, when it's on like major radio. And so, you know, I, I started to think about just, you know, making sure that we have opportunities where people are speaking Peter Tosh's name in, in public. And so we have his Earth Strong celebration in October. Um, that's every year. But then in 2015, uh, I decided to kind of hijack uh, what is known as um, 
April 20th, 420, which is just a, a cannabis enthusiast day mm-hmm. and um, really had some like pretty weak story to it where it's like, oh, it was, you know, a couple guys on college campus that used to always, I don't know, get together and smoke at 420. I was like, okay, a couple random people. I'll just claim that day <laughs> as International Peter Tosh Day. Right. And that's what, I mean, if you think about the colonizers, they've been claiming shit forever. So, you know, I think that it's time that, you know, considering what my father has been through for, for cannabis uh, legalization. People see him, you know, in this, this album cover and feel like he kind of walked very freely smoking cannabis, but uh, he was often targeted, you know, by the police and, and faced a, a lot of um, police brutality for his stance on legalization. And so um, I thought that it would be great to just kind of claim that day and, and continuously build awareness um, around the name, the legacy, his, his story, his contribution, and then also, you know, um, have the fans, you know, doing the same thing. And, and so that really only has the, the ability to grow for me. I'm like, that's, that's only something that can grow, <laughs> you know, the yeah, more yeah, people yeah. start to talk about it, the more people start to become aware and, um, the more people hear his story, you know, and, and, and see what, you know, he was all about because, my mom always said that my father used to say that when my music is known, it will be a new music. And it was it was more so to say that, you know, it will be long after I'm gone that, you know, I'll get, you know, what's rightfully mine. Yes. Oh, wow. That is some powerful words right there. Long after you're gone, people. Yeah. It sucks, though, right? That it is as long as it takes long after somebody is gone to really realize the value. So I mean, in 2019, my dad got this. Shikonia gold medal for his work in public service. This is after he was dead for eight years. Yeah. Eight and, eight and a half years. Wow. I mean, he would have been, he would have loved to hear it. Like, <laughs> <laughs> you know, he would have loved to be like, hey, that'd be nice. <laughs> right. <laughs> no, I would I would love to receive all my awards while I'm alive. That I mean, that's, <laughs> that's what I'm saying. Um, quick sidebar, you you really speak of lawyers, you, you refer to like intellectual property lawyers, or do you have like um, general lawyers who handle your handle your deals, especially like all your license deals and all that. Um, we do have a lawyer that handles licensing deals. We have litigation attorneys. Um, okay. Yeah, and then we um, we some we also sometimes have entertainment attorneys, <laughs> right. okay. so that you know you can look at um just the different aspects an entertainer an entertainment attorney will kind of know some of the the standards you know yeah. so even though i hate that word but they can say hey well i represent this client and this client um so and these are pretty big names so you you know and it's it's been what i've been doing in my other my other con- contracts um and i think that's also important is to build your team strategically. I am not doing this by myself. Um, it took a long time to, to get the people that we have ar- around us. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was really through Brian, you know, his network um, allowed us to really have people that could, um, that were knowledgeable. Cause I, um, like I said, I come from the hood of Boston and all my friends, <laughs> you know, are from, you know, that walk of life, you know. Um, and so, and then on my mother's side, there's not too many that actually graduated college. They've, they've gone through high school. They've, some of them have attended college, but not too many have, have gone through college. And um, Boston's this kind of weird place where you don't have a lot of um, black people of color that are, um, you know, that are doing well. And yeah. so you, 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 there's not a, a, a huge network to kind of grow in um, and, and feel like you can, you know, reach out to different friends and family. like, oh, you know, an entertainment attorney, you know, that's, people are going to call me for that, unfortunately. And so um, Brian being, you know, in the industry for over 25 years represents, you know, working with people like Nas and L. Cool J and um, tons of others. Uh, Def Jam Records, he was able to, you know, say, all right, we're, we're looking for, you know, this person or, you know, I, look, I can get you a web designer. And I remember when I had my old management, um, well, I fired my old manager, then there was an interim manager who was 
also my accountant. Um, <laughs> and he was um, trying to get me to pay $20,000 for a, a website to be And this was in 2013. And I would just, and so I told him and he was like, I was like, I don't, I think this is too expensive. He's like, well, they've represented companies like Ford and, um, you know, they designed for all of these big corporations. He was like, well, I got them to take half of it off. You know, you can pay half now and half later. I was like, I don't want to pay $20,000 now. I don't want to pay $20,000 later. (laughs) And so, um, you know, and, and, I had a, he, he tried to um, belittle me by saying, oh, so you just want a website that's, you know, going to look like it was designed in a garage. I was just like, it is 2014. I'm like, you can find someone who's extremely talented um, that has, that is charging you absolutely nothing. Or you can find someone that is, you know, that has very little skill and charging you a ton of money. Like there's such a wide range when it comes to, you know, who's available to offer you creative services. And so I was like, for you to just belittle my intelligence, you know, and say, oh, my skill, you're just looking for some cheap bullshit to be put together. Um, I had to like, I'm like, see, this is where you get fired because you don't respect me. <laughs> this is where you get fired, but I tried to tell us yeah. about <laughs> Because now not only am I paying you an hourly rate to try to find these deals, um, you're bringing me bullshit. So I'm paying you an hourly rate to bring me $20,000 proposals. That's not going to work for me. That's only serving you. Uh, and so, like I said, that was the point in which, you know, they got fired. Um, but there's so there's so many aspects of of so many aspects of of kind of you know especially running a, a, an estate. There's also the family aspect. You know, it's, it's nine other Jamaican family members <laughs> who are accustomed to you know getting money at a certain time. And um, you know, my mom, I could say, um, her mother and my grandmother on my mother's side was very much about family, and so that was something that I, I kind of took with me in, in running the estate and making sure that I, I build the bond. Like we are, although, you know, we have different um, mothers from my siblings. Uh, I'm, I made a point to like, I don't even use the term half sibling, you know, I just yeah, say, you know, yeah. Um, and so I, I made a point to make sure that when we do get together, you know, for an event or what so have you, we're also connecting as family and, 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 and building a bond um, so that even though that I am all the way in the United States and some of them are in Jamaica, some one is in Belgium, um, we, we always stay connected and know that that comes first. You know, everything I do is for my brothers and sisters and my nieces and nephews. Do you, would you say that you apply the same management and business strategy principles that you do for the estate to the foundation? Um, Yes. I I say that um, this is a joke that I say between um, Brian, the manager, and then Akeda. Um, my niece and also the executive assistant, I said like, we are a a three person conglomerate. (laughs) Mm. I'm, you know, the visionary who's just like, Hey, I want to have a foundation and not knowing anything about how to start run a foundation. Um, also still learning through the school of hard knocks. Um, but still just pushing through and saying, all right, step one, you file the paperwork, you know, (laughs) 501 C three, um, and so that still is the same process of, you know, getting the right people in place to make sure that you can be successful um, and learning through the school of hard knocks, seeing how things are done and, and trying your best and best at it, but also building partnerships. You know, I think that's where you, you find people with the skills that you need and, um, and create opportunities that are, are mutually beneficial. Yeah. So what sort of partnerships have you guys built? Well, with um, the foundation, we've partnered with Minorities for, for Medical Marijuana. This is one of the, the largest um, minority um, member organization within the United States that's geared towards um, making sure that those that have been impacted by the war on drugs have an opportunity to participate um, in this new booming economic you know, economy. And um, 
so we've we've partnered with them to to do expungements clinics to um you know provide education workshops and and we're really continuing to look at how we can um solidify our, our calendar and partnerships to really have some some even more solid programs that's cool um yeah i mean i mean so we have a, a foundation for my dad as well but i mean my hats off to you we I mean my poor niece we actually i mean that's took we say all right you run it i mean i'm on the board and all of that but my nieces do most of the legwork and they do an awesome job so yeah my hats off to them but another another big initiative that that um it was big to dad and which is a big part of what we do in the foundation is youth mentorship and youth and um, youth advoc- advocacy and all of that. And I see, I mean, similarly with you guys, you have the Can't Blame the Youth Initiative. Can you just tell us about that a little bit? Yes. Um, children are definitely my first love. And so I couldn't have this foundation without having an opportunity to create opportunities to connect with kids. Um, mm-hmm. And so the can't blame the youth is is really aimed at um, bridging that gap, um, that generation gap, you know, and, and introducing people to the or young people to the to the message and and music of my father, really um, for inspiration, breaking down songs like African and connecting it to like modern day times and the power of unity within Black people um, when they can recognize themselves as African first before Trinidadian, Jamaican, Texan, you know, or, you know, European. If we recognize ourselves as African, there's a stronger bond, you know, between us as as Black black people. And there's a a greater power that we have unified. And, you know, um, going through a, a, a good amount of the catalog as well. And Mystic Man is another one, which where my father really breaks down just what he doesn't eat, what, you know, from, you know, not drinking pink green soda and um, <laughs> not eating frankfurters. Natural, <laughs> and, yes, yes, all natural, And, yes. you know, um, uh, kind of talking about some of the, the foods and ingredients that are in a lot of the, the foods that people drink and eat every single day and, and talking, you know, introducing the words like carcinogen. You know, most children don't know that word, but... Um, you know, teaching them how that is a cancer causing ingredient. It's like known, it's no secret yet. These are allowed in our foods and you're drinking it in that bigger drink that you're drinking right now. So <laughs> sorry, bigger change of fucking ingredients. <laughs> sorry, F word. Uh, it's, it's all right. It's all right. But yeah, it's, it's, I think that there's so, there's so much that's not taught in traditional education and, um, when you can can inspire young people to not only um, better themselves, but to also help better the community around them, I, I think that we only we only do do right by them in that way. So your dad was a big advocate for equal rights, and of course for the um, the legalized legalize it movement, um, a pioneer for cannabis legislation and all of that. Uh, but it's so ironic so sad and ironic that what is it maybe 30 years after he passes within a 30 year period after he passes the son your brother john jawara jawara yeah yes he is caught in new jersey for cannabis possession i don't know how much or marijuana possession i should say mm-hmm. i don't know how much or whatever but the uh, the sentence is so I mean, I want you to tell this story. I don't want to. I don't want to spoil it too much. Mm-hmm. I mean, let's kind of walk us through that story. Um, you can leave out whatever details you want to leave out, but I mean, it's such a it's it's a gripping story. Uh, yeah, it was um, uh, 2013 when my brother um, Peter's youngest son was arrested for cannabis possession in New Jersey. Um, he was held for three months without even a hearing. Usually. If he was in Massachusetts, um, you would have the hair in the next business day. Um, and so it was Father's Day weekend that he was arrested. And around sometime in September is when he had um, his hearing. And um, that's when, like, my family, my, my mom and I and, and his girlfriend, uh, we all uh, drove down to New Jersey just to be there to support him for the hearing and, and um 
mind you, he's never been arrested before. He's he's never had any run-ins with the with the police. Um, he's a follower of Rastafari, a musician that goes by the name of Tosh One, um, and a father of, of four children. And um, at that hearing is when we we realized the depth of what we were dealing with and heard the prosecution um, chart offer a 20-year um, plea deal it's to him. Nice. And, um, you know, this is a, a a time when, you know, you started to see legalization happen in, in different states. It wasn't legal in, in New Jersey yet, but um, there still was this trend. There were people within the the country, the same country, making millions of dollars off of the plant. That's 20 um, years. That's like 20 you, years. That's that, people kill people and spend less time in jail for that. Anyway, it's sorry, true. And so that I mean that highlights the 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 hypocrisy and and the the kind of um um brokenness of our criminal justice system. You know, you don't when you don't deal with it, you just stay ignorant. You just you don't you don't deal with it. You have the right. privilege that we've had the privilege of not really having to deal with it for, for many, many years. And so he was able to make bail um, that year in December. Um, but he still was 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 kind of forced to go back and forth to New Jersey for pretrial motions. They would often offer him a, a lesser um uh, amount of years, you know, 15 years and saying, this is the best that we're going to offer you. And then they'll bring it down to 10. And, um, and, you know, you need to take this deal or, you know, if you go to the fiscal to trial, you'll definitely get the full, the full 20 years. And, and they weigh that on you as someone who has never been in, you know, incarcerated before. And so um, there was a point in 2016 uh, where it it got down to to five years, and although we were torn, you know, between like just fighting, you know, fighting this thing all the way, uh, New Jersey was known to have New Jersey is you know still known to have some of the highest um, um, mass incarceration rates in this in the country, and so it felt like it would have probably been a, a futile you know battle to to try to fight, and so Jawara ended up taking the plea, the plea deal. Um, his lawyers uh, and different people were just saying, well, you know, you'll probably end up serving a year and you'll just get this behind you. You know, you'll have some time served since you were in jail for about six months back in 2013 and you'll you'll put this behind you. And so in um, at the end of 2016, he accepted the plea in the beginning in January of 2017, he um, turned himself into <clears throat> Bergen County Jail, which is the jail that he was in before. Um, and uh, after a month of being incarcerated, um, uh, I remember getting a call from my mother, actually, um, who was very kind of frantic on the phone and she was crying. She just was like, Niambi, there's there's a doctor on the phone. And um, he he said something about Gamal. I, I don't know. I don't know. And she's just crying frantically. And and um, the doctor says to me, you know, hi, I'm, I'm uh, I need to perform a, a life saving medical procedure on your brother. And um, he's been attacked, you know, by another inmate. And um, it was a a brain surgery that they were going to do. He suffered a mass um uh, a severe traumatic brain injury. And um, so at that time, we immediately flew to New Jersey from Boston and uh, went to the hospital um, immediately. And um, when we got to the hospital, we actually were told that we, we couldn't even visit him. They, was, they said he's a ward of the state and you, you have to contact the, the jail to, to get visitation. Um, uh, which is crazy to think that, you know, he's this like fun loving, peace loving, larger than life. If you Google him, you know, Jawar or Tashwan, you'll see videos on on YouTube. But he's the type of person that, you know, I'm sure everyone knew who he was in there because he's a singer. He's like he's a performer, just born that way, you know, <laughs> center yeah. of attention type of thing. And um, and so. Um, we call the jail and, and 
they um, allow us, you know, visitation. They make a point to say, we don't normally allow visitation, um, you know, but I think that it's really because of who our dad, you know, is, mm -hmm. um, why, they, why they made an exception, probably just concerned about negative press. Because, um, you know, that's immediately what we would have, you know, did right after. And so yeah. um, we walked into the surgical ICU at, at Hackensack Medical Center and um, and we saw Jawara. He had, you know, half of his locks um, shaved off. He had his nose was was broken with a um, bruised up and his face was swollen. He had tubes down his throat. Um, he was connected to oxygen, literally fighting for his life. And he had um, a handcuff on his ankle, as well as um, correctional officers that were surrounding him. Um, and it just was mind blowing to, to think that anyone could be in this situation where they're fighting for their life. And as correctional officers who are, you know, just provides watching them that's just negative you know energy right there and you don't have the right to have your loved ones to to hold your hand to to you know uplift your spirit it, it was crazy um and that's actually the time that I that I quit teaching it was at that very moment that I said you know I have a bigger purpose mm -hmm. and um unfortunately although he did um we were able to bring him home and um, to Boston and he stayed in the hospital for 500 plus days. Um, he brought him home to our home and my mom and I cared for him. But in, in 2020, uh, he did succumb to his injuries and, and passed away. All of this stemming, stemming from some marijuana possession. All of this over a plant that hasn't hurt anyone yeah. throughout history. Wow. I mean, I, I, I heard your dad say that it, it, it's good for the flu, asthma, tuberculosis, glaucoma. Mm -hmm. And yeah, there's a lot more, you know, it's a, it's, it's known as um, it can help put the body back in homeostasis. And so whatever is out of balance, um, that's what cannabis actually does compared to alcohol, which is a new study shows that no matter what, type of alcohol you are drinking you are killing brain cells so you know oh, choose your <laughs> choose oh, your just so just so you come for my substance i'm just saying we could choose our choose might want to choose our our All vices right. a little bit you know smarter i mean it's i don't mind a, a drink or two but mm -hmm. i understand um uh, you just think about how we have this un, you know this relationship with alcohol and wine and then a lot of us just through to due to misinformation and propaganda, have a, a completely separate understanding and, and relationship and a lot of judgment that we put, oh, you know, I'll have my glass of wine and no, I'm not, you know, but, and I hear this from everybody, and but they have this like, because of just the way we we're brought up, um, there's like, but you know, I know I don't, I don't smoke, you know, <laughs> I, don't, I, don't, I don't do that. I'm too good. I'm too good for that, <laughs> you know? And so it's, um, it's interesting, you know, that we, we live in this time. And, and, and I think there's a lot of awakening that, that has to happen just for all of us, particularly us as black people, because everything that we know to be true has come from colonization, everything that we accept as, as normal, you know, as like the ideal is Eurocentric. And so I, I think it's very important that we, we recognize, you know, um, not even just cannabis, a lot of the plants that we've used throughout history to help heal us and, and uplift our spirits um, are still there. And, and a lot of times it's those plants, particularly in times of a pandemic or when you're sick or when you're dealing with things that can, that can heal you. You know, it's a health crisis right now, cancer and um, so many other diseases, heart disease, you know, I could go on uh, tangent <laughs> you had me at you had me at homeostasis I, i'm i'm thinking all right maybe i need to try more cannabis maybe i need to i need to get i'm going to try more cannabis yeah it's something that we have to learn to do many of us have have done it um incorrectly um a mm. lot of people will uh drink alcohol and smoke you know whether it's at a party that's the way i was introduced you go to a party people are passing you drinks and people are you know passing spliffs around or whatever and um but when you 
when you drink alcohol, you dehydrate yourself and then you smoke, you're kind of um, compounding that, you know, it's, it's your, so now you're just extra dehydrated. And, and that's usually where a lot of the you know, hallucinations and the nausea and the paranoia kind of set in is when you're just not using it responsibly. And so there's ways in which you kind of learn and titrate up to kind of have a better experience. It's, I have to ask, you know, I have to ask, I'm asking questions. I have to ask, so how do I do this properly? How do I properly consume cannabis? Um, well, now there's so many things on the market from um, edibles and, and tinctures and bath salts, uh, but I still recommend the traditional flour, um, you know, rolling up a spliff because to start, you know, I think that um, that it, it, it hits the bloodstream a lot faster. So you're able to control it. Um, mm-hmm. You take one hit, you wait, you'll usually fail it after time that may wear off at a certain time and you're able to kind of control your high when you eat edibles. Um, it takes a while before it gets broken down, you know, by the liver and all your digestive system. And then, you know, hour later, because you done, you know, popped, you know, a whole brownie in your yep. mouth or I know half it. of yeah. a whole tray because it tastes good. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> yeah. Now you're up in, you know, Pluto somewhere <laughs> and you yeah. have no idea how to get back down you and you're horrified, you know. Um, so, <laughs> well, I so... wasn't horrified. <laughs> I thought I thought I, I was I could sing anytime I started to sing Fuji's, you know. Anyway, well, if on. it was a positive experience for you, then you're, you're in a good space. But so yeah. many people, I'm talking about when they, you know, when they're probably not frequent consumers or have never done it before, and that's what they go to first. Often it can be a little unsettling. Um, but if you're in, you know, a safe space, I think that's always a, a good way to be. If you're around people that you know that um, you're safe with, family, friends, um, you, I don't recommend having any responsibilities. I, you know, first, like if you want to do anything, <laughs> depending on, <laughs> it depends. It depends. I, I consume, I consume to work out. I consume, um, you know, when I want to uh, get some work done, it can help me focus at times. Okay. Um, I, I consume definitely to, to just get inspiration that the, this responsibility of carrying on an estate also has many creative aspects that are needed. And sometimes I, I find myself, um, you know, looking inward for that spiritual guidance. I could definitely say it helps. Um, it helps many kind of um, connect with that higher power. And so uh, there's a reason why Rasta, um, Rastas have recognized it as a, as a sacred plant. Um, it balances out the life holistically and to be spiritually um, healthy is to be happy, you know, and is to be healthy physically. So it's, it's all connected. Okay. I'm with that. I'm with that. So it's going back to the justice for Jawara movement. So how's the progress with this been and what would you say you guys have achieved so far? Um, it's, it's been, it's been good. I would say, you know, I, I definitely still want to see legalization happen on a, on a national level. I want to mm-hmm. see legalization happen in, in Jamaica. I want to see legalization happen everywhere because once you have, um, there's so many people that are like, oh, you know, I'm, I, I'm, I'm not okay with, you know, legalization unless it's for medical. Uh, but the reality is, no matter how you consume cannabis, you're still getting the medicinal benefits. Um, and so um, if you're smoking it at a party, that mm-hmm. is, that's good for you. <laughs> <That's>, okay. <laughs> you're okay. having a good time. Being happy is being uh, healthy. There's, there's, you can't separate the two. We have a, for some reason we want to, we want our, our, our hospitals and, and our, you know, to, we want it to be this, this kind of Eurocentric experience, you know, it's like, oh, it must be like in a clinic and you go see a doctor and, and it's, you know, but to consume and, and be in a fun environment where you uplift your spirit, you're not thinking about, you know, any problems that you have, that is, that's healing, you know, that, that helps us cope through many different the different um, things that we go through. And when you're happy, your body has the ability to, to heal um, internally. And so, you know, I, I, I would say that I want to see legalization um, happen uh, on a global level. And so we, we definitely have a lot more um, ways to go, but I, I, I appreciate that when people um, often learn about my brother's story, they, 
a lot of them don't really fully understand how failed our criminal justice system is. We hear so many, you know, um, kind of cliche words, war on drugs, or um, um, those have, that have been impacted by, you know, cannabis prohibition. But to, to really hear Joara's story and my family's story, um, it, it definitely resonates and, and, and gets people to understand why legalization is, is very important because we shouldn't be, um, you know, locking up anybody over this plant. There's so many other things that we need to focus on in society. And this plant that has often healed so many people um, from so many ailments is, is not where we need to focus our attention. I agree. I agree. So I mean, let's talk about um, some, of your, uh, some of your upcoming products. Scene. Yes. Uh, Scene. Scene by Peter Tosh. It's our, um, it's our, our cannabis brand. I'm super, super excited. We're still um, uh, developing it. And um, the vision was really that, you know, my dad many, many years ago uh, showed people what legalization should look like. He, he not only, you know, talked the talk, but he walked the walk. And so seeing is really my father's vision. It's, it's a vision that he, he's, he's seen, you know, a long time ago. Zine? All right. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. Well, as we get ready to wrap Niambi, is there yes. anything that we haven't covered that you want to make sure we get out to the audience here today? Um, I would just say, you know, if anybody wants to, to learn more about the legacy and, and follow the legacy, because we're continuing to grow, um, continuing to connect with people. It's because of the fans and the listeners that, um, you know, that are also, you know, we do what we do and, and to continue and to reach and connect people. So go to, um, any social media platform, Instagram, Facebook, and follow at Peter Tosh. Um, also check out petertosh.com. Uh, we're constantly developing new merchandise. I'm excited about this year. We're looking, we have some new partnerships coming. Podcast World, there you have it. The legacy of Peter Tosh with Niambi Macintosh. Subscribe to Caribbean Power Lunch at caribbeanpowerlunch.com slash subscribe. Check us out on Spotify. Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, CastBox, wherever you listen to your podcast. And with that, Niambi. Thank you. Thank you for having me. <laughs> podcast World, Cabin Studios, we are out. Bye.